0: with your hosts and david Vietti. so we get
1: letters lots of letters lots of comments and a lot of questions and i think we answered last week a lot of the lingering questions about the philadelphia experiment
2: so we don't have to talk about that anymore right yeah i you know i it was always a silly topic gene Right. It was it was kind of crazy. I mean, in in the pantheon of fringy stories, it's got to be at the top of the list. I it just doesn't hold water. Well, that and Georgia Damski's UFO photographs, I think that also Yeah, or or, or what's his name um Billy Meyer that actually to me the Billy Meyer stuff is the most laughable of all of the UFO photographs I have to tell you that that and other photos we we've seen on someone's website whose name we won't mention no I think you
1: gave his name
2: a pseudonym and that pseudonym was nutcase yeah 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 but, no, I mean, yeah, I, there, there are certain cases we can definitely put to rest, I think. For my money, the, unless someone comes forward with something we don't know about the Philadelphia Experiment, I think we can safely put that in the silly box. What was that
1: sound? I heard nothing. I think you heard what I, I, that, What was that sound? Do you have elves over there? No, I hear nothing. I have no sounds okay, at fine, all. Nothing. Yeah, you, didn't, you didn't. Ladies and gentlemen... This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and uh, David Bietney who is slowly losing it. No, I'm quickly losing it, but okay. Thank you for... Who hears strange well, noises it, in the background, and there are no strange noises. Right. There is only Zool. Zool, right. Yeah. Okay. That was The, the only reason we bring up well, any line just, from a Dan Aykroyd movie is because a friend of his, David Sarita who worked with him on a dvd about ufos is going to join us on today's show
2: what's he going to talk about
1: I guess he'll talk about the DVD. He'll talk about also some of his other stuff because he has an interesting background, as you and I have determined from our careful research and also our big research staff that helps us (laughs) every week, provides us with all the information, all the evidence with which to disprove what people say, to prove what
2: they say, if we could do that. Our research elves, a.k.a. the Internet. That's right. Firefox. That's our researcher, dude. It's Firefox.
1: Well, sometimes let me tell you. Sometimes we do use Internet Explorer to check compatibility of our research. Oh,
2: speak for yourself, young man. Okay, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I won't run known viruses on my machine, and Internet Explorer is definitely. Actually, it's worse than a virus. <laughs> it's worse than a virus. Well, you can it, always it help is. with. Uh, there is an article at CNN Money
1: which suggests that we shouldn't just have Bill Gates leave Microsoft; that Steve Ballmer ought to join him.
2: Well, I think Steve Ballmer should be sent to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean,
1: but you know, that's just me. He'll probably have enough money for a submarine, though, so it's not going to work.
2: Oh, probably for sure, Gene. I, I, there's um, we don't need to go into it in this show. This is this is the Paracast, not Silly Lives of the Rich and Famous.
1: Well, sometimes they coalesce, mm. but that's another story. Not today. Yeah. Not today. I will tell you folks that if you want to comment on the shows, write to news at the dot com or visit our online discussion forums and interact with yourselves and occasionally we may even have a guest appearance by David Biedney.
2: Like that's a difficult thing to do. Actually
1: <laughs> it's a rare thing, you know. You yeah. know, David comes out there, you know, like every full moon and he puts up a few comments. <laughs> You're in the Paracast.
0: I have a feeling we're not in
3: Kansas anymore.
2: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
0: You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine if you will that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier.
1: So, David, how did you and Dan Aykroyd hook up to make this DVD on UFOs?
4: Well, originally, um, when I was doing research for a book and a potential documentary, Evidence the Case for NASA UFOs, a mutual friend of Dan Aykroyd caught wind of it, and I, I sent Dan these NASA videotapes of what appear to be UFOs I'm um, captured on on video cameras on space shuttle missions throughout the 1990s and he was so interested in it he wanted to read the my unpublished book on the material and he read it and was, was astounded at not only the evidence but also you know my whole experience in the UFO world i um, having seen a UFO in Berkeley in 1968 on my way home from from elementary school I've been a believer since day one, and so that's how we started, and then I made Evidence the Case for NASA UFOs. It was released in 2000 by Terra Entertainment, and some of the first people to buy that film were contractors like Joaquin Martin, um, who, you know, defense contractors, and, you know, Dan did the cameo introduction to the film, and we would always have these dinners and these long conversations, and I thought, God, Dan is so brilliant on the subject of UFOs and he's so knowledgeable you know I should I should just do a film with him and sit him down in front of a camera and just talk and let him talk about what he knows and and hopefully he could stimulate the Hollywood community and also the community at large into the disclosure process so we made the film in the last uh, year and a half and we got a lot of expert witnesses like astronaut Gordon Cooper Minister of Defense Paul Hillier Uh, John Schussler, who directs the Mutual UFO Network, and he was a former NASA contractor, Air Force personnel, and on and on it goes. We have a lot of expert witnesses um, in the film to back Ackroyd up. And so this is the first time historically that a major celebrity out of Hollywood has come forward to say that, no, this is not a joke, it's not fiction. It's not a Steven Spielberg movie anymore. It, this has been happening since the 19, uh, since Ken Arnold's sighting in 1947, and Roswell, and uh, even earlier, the Battle of 42 in Los Angeles. Um, it's been a continuous phenomena and we need to look at it much more seriously so the film already there are many other celebrities who have contacted me who want to talk and they want to disclose and and what I'm hoping we're going to do here is start a stream of, of disclosure that will ultimately lead to Congress
2: David can we talk about the experience you had in Berkeley growing up that you alluded to can you tell us more about that sighting
4: yeah I mean back in you know 1968 I was seven years old Our family had moved from Alberta, Canada, to Berkeley. My dad was getting his Ph.D. at Berkeley in psychology. And my mom was, you know, a mother of four, and we were, you know, living in in, in the Berkeley uh, uh, student housing area. And one day walking home from Cornell Elementary School, I was a Star Trek fan back then. I built model airplanes and model cars, you know, the Rebel model cars. I I was very knowledgeable of aircraft, and, you know, I had seen the Goodyear blimp. I had, you know, had a good knowledge of what was in the air. And walking home from school, I noticed all these people pointing up in the sky. I was Mm -hmm. with my friend walking home. And it's amazing in the 60s that you could let your kid walk home from school by themselves at that age.
1: (laughs) You can't let your kid walk down the street nowadays it's
4: unbelievable i mean I, i really it's sad for kids that you can't even just go running into the woods and look for snakes and frogs like i did by yourself without being afraid but because kids back then spent so much time outside and you weren't staring at the ceiling of a of a car i was looking up in the sky and everyone was pointing up at this classic you know metallic saucer that was shimmering and very clear at about 3500 feet probably you know 100 feet across or more this amazing flying saucer is just hovering there no noise and mm-hmm. it's, you know now when i look back at it it wasn't far from the berkeley national lab i mean the berkeley national lab is on the hill above the berkeley campus and if you look if you're looking north in the east bay and in in, uh, in oakland and in berkeley and you're heading north, looking towards the Golden Gate Bridge. It's just off the side of the mountain, um, up in the sky. Uh, you know, really clearly visible for a full 20 minutes. And after 20 minutes, the thing just blinked out. It, it went invisible into another dimension. <laughs> and after the sighting, I continued to have dreams about uh, um, rotating spinning lights. I saw um, these multicolored lights spinning clockwise and one set going anti-clockwise on the same axis. And even at that age, I knew it had something to do with their propulsion system. And then, very shortly after that, when we used to play hide-and-go-seek and and kick the can and we moved to San Francisco to another neighborhood, I used to always stare at the Politi star system and I didn't even know the name of that star system, but I just went, when I was counting to a hundred and everyone was hiding. Every time that was my star that I hooked into, and I was I've been wondering since if that is if there was a connection to the, to that star system. You've entered
0: another dimension.
2: You've entered the Paracast.
1: We are in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. and we have David Sarita, who is one of the stars with Dan Aykroyd on the new DVD called Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs. He's also a director, so he plays that multifaceted role to put that together. He's telling us about his UFO encounter as a child. And you're lucky, you know, I have not seen a UFO my co-host has. He's on at least a couple of occasions. Oh, yeah. yeah, you have to get
4: outside or, you know, fly a lot. I'm I'm a skydiver now. I, I haven't jumped for a few years, actually. But you just got to get out a lot. I mean, I went to Maui in the year 2000, and during the humpback whale uh, time when the humpback whales are there, for some reason there's all these mysterious lights zipping around the skies, around the islands, and everybody sees them. I mean, it's so commonplace in Maui to hear UFO stories.
3: Really, but, I've never uh, heard, you really heard about Hawaiian
2: UFO I've never heard of uh, a significant Hawaiian UFO sightings. That's an interesting revelation, David.
4: Oh yeah, you have to get to Maui. There's, there's, you can just ask people about them, and really? people camp out in the crater at Haleakala, and they see these lights coming into the craters at night and zipping around and then taking off. And really? I've seen the same huh. things up on Haleakala.
1: Hmm. Moving on to some of your experiences as an adult, how did this the experience at the age of seven and these dreams lead to becoming professionally involved in this crazy business putting out a book dvds etc
4: well you know my mother was a lawyer my dad's a psychologist i could have gone down the, the straight and narrow and follow the same path but when you have a sighting and it's real all the videotape you know in our film i mean some skeptics can look at our film and say the UFOs over Phoenix are hanging on a string, and they're not. They they can they imagine all these things because they just can't accept it. But when you see one of these things with your own eyes, and you know, you know, for example, the Billy Meyer photographs that that we used in the film, that's exactly what I saw, and it was that clear.
2: And uh, say that again, David. The, Billy the, the, Meyer photographs. You,
4: the Billy Meyer photographs, I mean, that is yeah. what I saw. I
2: saw a UFO that looks just
4: like the Billy Meyer photographs. Now, I'm not an expert on the Billy Meyer case, and I'm not going to argue it, uh, whether it's real or not. But as a, as a professional photographer for over 20 years, there's no question that, and having done, um, what you call, you know, multi-layered photographs when you do double exposures or you also do surrealism. Jerry Olsman, the the early surrealist from the nineteen fifties and sixties. And when you look at surreal photographs and you look at the Meyer photographs, those are not surreal implants. They are either they're really objects and they're really there in the photographs. And that is what I saw. And it did look exactly like those craft. Now, when you're when you haven't seen one yourself The the first thing people do is, oh, my God, I mean, that can't be real. That's got to be fake, and they go right to trying to disprove, disprove, disprove. But when you have, you know, if we were in a court of law, for example, we were in the U.S. Supreme Court, and I brought the expert witness testimony that's in our film, Um, Astronaut Gordon Cooper testifying that he chased UFOs in his F-86 in post-World War II in Germany. And they filmed one landing on the uh, in Edwards Air Force Base, and they developed the film, and Cooper looked at the film and sent it to the Pentagon and said, yes, there was a flying saucer, and it landed on our base. That becomes fact in in a court of law when you're an expert military witness. It is not, you know, and especially when you have more witnesses coming forward, like... You know, U.S. Air Force retired Ken Storch, who tells that we nearly went to, you know, to nuclear war status with Russia because we thought they were firing missiles at us doing several thousand miles per hour, but in, in actuality we were dealing with UFOs. When you have expert witness testimony coming forward in a court of law, and if we could use this film in a court of law, they would have a really hard time, the opponent, shooting you down and saying, no, this isn't real. How would they do it? I mean, how do you say no to an expert witness like Gordon Cooper that you're delusional? Gordon Cooper had Parkinson's disease, which is what he died from. And Parkinson's disease is not schizophrenia. And many people, including James Olberg at NASA, tries to disprove Cooper by saying, well, he was ill. He, was, he did not have schizophrenia.
2: Mm-hmm. I, the reason I, I just voice skepticism at the Billy Myers stuff, David, I'm, I'm not questioning what you saw as far as my own background in uh, witnessing ufo phenomenon i have a fairly extensive background in this but it actually what it's done is it's made me more discerning and more critical of Mm -hmm. people's claims i mean this is what happens when you when you witness one of these things and especially if you witness it with other people not just yourself You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: Let's hold that thought, David, so I could tell our listeners you're in the power cast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And David Cerrito is with us. He is director and one of the stars for the new DVD, Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs. And our resident co host, Luce Cannon, and by the way, photo expert, David Bietney, will
2: continue. Well, the, the thing about it, uh, Gene and David, uh, and our audience, uh, you know, I, I've obviously seen all of the Billy Myers stuff. Not obviously, but I've seen all of those photographs. And um, they're obviously faked. Now, I'm not questioning whether or not these are actual objects in the photographic scene that have been shot, but those are not real UFOs. I think they're very clearly identified non-flying objects. Uh, there are so many holes and problems with the Billy Myers story that I completely discredit it. And and the thing is, David, in my own sightings, the things that I've seen, um, it's clear to me that these are not devices that are current human technology they're not and so let's just get that out of the way i'm not questioning that these things are some unknown objects um but the problem david is that people like billy meyer are so off the wall that what they end up doing to this field of research, a field of research I take very seriously, um, is they they basically detract credibility from it. They essentially give the naysayers and the skeptics a tremendous amount of ammo to discredit what I think is important and genuine research into this. Now, again, I'm not questioning your own sighting, especially...
4: The only thing that I can say 100% certainty yeah. is my own sighting, right. and I think the, the Phoenix Lights also, because of the multiple witnesses in the Phoenix Lights yeah. case, which is also in our film, you can't deny tens of thousands of witnesses absolutely, that they, are, they are mass hallucinating. In fact, when people give up the the hypothesis of a mass hallucination, I beg them to experiment and put a thousand people together yeah. and to produce a mass hallucination. Right. And reproduce, it. Reproduce, yeah, reproduce it. Absolutely. yeah,
0: Reproduce it. Reproduce it is always the bottom line. Because it's not a good argument to say, oh, that's just a
4: mass hallucination. Well, what the heck is a mass hallucination? Whoever did it successfully and demonstrated it as, as right. an experiment and duplicated it. Absolutely. That's nonsense.
1: I absolutely But, you know,
4: agree. I'm not, all I can say is as a photographer, In the Meyer case, those discs are actually there. They are not put in like like Jerry Olseman did in the 1970s and, you know, late 60s, early 70s when Meyer was claiming to have these experiences. Those are in the photographs themselves. And the the shadowing and the detail and the reflectivity, there is something really there. Now, whether it's from the Pleiades, I have no way personally of knowing. I just know as a photographer that you're dealing with real objects. And, and if there are models that he built and he did all this, then I would say, what a waste of a life to, to try to hoax the world for, for decades. Decades. I'm not an expert on the Meyer case myself. Right. I, I, I like those photographs because they're clear and they remind me of what I saw that day in Berkeley. hmm But there's many other, you know, we have footage from Phoenix, footage from Sonora, California, um, the the triangles, uh, uh, Michael Lee Hills footage from the Great Lakes areas. We've got, we've got other amazing still photographs, footage from Mexico, and, you know, if someone's a really good hoaxer, they can fool some of the best uh, experts in, in photography. But one of the reasons why the issue becomes polarized with looking at video evidence of UFOs is that as soon as you have one hoax just like in crop circles you have one right. hoax circle then, then all of a sudden everyone thinks they're all fake oh they must have all been done that way.
2: well exactly that's what I mean that's that that's problem not of true credibility because when you have
4: eyewitness testimony from people like Gordon Cooper and even President Reagan citing and Jenny Carter citing you cannot deny expert witness testimony in a court of law You you, you can't just come in and say well You know, like James Oberg does with Gordon Cooper, I just love how he does this. How does James Oberg, who's a Houston control operator who's inside all day looking at a computer screen, how does he argue with an experienced U-2 test pilot, fighter pilot, an astronaut who's been outside looking through the window of of an aircraft his whole life and knows everything that's out there? He knows what a cloud is, what a bird is, what a balloon is. He knows everything. And he's telling you that these things that he chased in his F-86 outperformed him. That is golden testimony, in my opinion. Well, I would agree with it's more valuable than the videotape.
2: I would actually agree with that. Actually, also the fact that at this point, it's important for us to all remember that photographs and video are no longer what I would consider evidence. They're far too easy to fabricate. And to manufacture and to especially modify. today, especially, especially today. today. Yeah, I mean the notion that photographic evidence is allowed in any court case to me at this point in time is simply it's uh, it's unacceptable. It's, it's too easy acceptable. to fake photographs. Absolutely, it's too so, easy to
3: fake. But
4: there is real video out there and real photographs of UFOs, and unfortunately, the guys, the sky watchers, are not using. You know, Panavision, you know, 35 millimeter yeah. cameras, you know, yeah. th- and everyone complains. Well, how come it's a little bit grainy? Well, sorry, oh, the, yeah, the guys that you know can't afford Canon XL ones that are sitting on the roof looking for UFOs. I mean,
2: and it's not like you know you have a, a guaranteed time when something's going to show up where you can set the camera up on a tripod. No, exactly. You know, it's not like that's possible. Absolutely.
1: Well, usually, folks, yeah. when you try to do that, you almost assure yourself that nothing will happen. Yeah.
4: Oh yeah. I mean, if I I, I went up to uh, Mark Olson's place at SonoraSightings.com and he he's gotten a lot of mysterious objects including a daylight triangle, which we have in the film. And the triangular UFOs have been seen from coast to coast, and they are not the B-2 bomber, and I I point that out of the film. I show you the B-2 bomber and the configuration of the three lights on the B-2 and the F-117, and then you look at the triangular UFO, and you're not looking at the same uh, aircraft. But anyway, I was up there with my girlfriend, and we interviewed Mark, and just as we were leaving, you know, because I had my Canon XL1 there, really high-res video camera and we got tired of looking and we didn't see anything and he phones me on my cell phone when i'm in the driveway leaving and says get back here get back here and when i get back he just him and and another witness who's a friend of mine patrick uskert uh, who writes for ufo magazine and he also videotaped a ufo over venice beach and in, in his case it was very similar that he had to run home, get the video camera, and, you know, get get the last end of it, and he, he gets it on the videotape. Mark Olsen gets this triangle at the last minute. He replays it for us, and there it is. There's this amazing daylight triangle caught, captured on videotape. Hmm. So that's what it's like when you're sky watching, And when there's places like, you know, Jeff Willis gets a lot of amazing footage out of Phoenix where where you have the ma- massive Phoenix Lights case, and Dr. Lynn Keitai, you know, because she lives there, she gets amazing photographs. But if I was to go there for one week, I wouldn't see anything unless I hit the jackpot. Right. So that's what makes this very difficult.
1: Actually, it all happened to me, and I was living out here in the Phoenix area when the Phoenix Lights came about, and I was asleep. Oh, you, told, oh, you were asleep? <laughs> of course. That always happens to me. I'm always asleep when these things happen. The only time I remember being awake is when I was living back east in New Jersey. We had a slight earthquake. Mm -hmm. That's it for me. Never happens to me. I
4: usually sleep through the earthquakes, too, but, you know, the L.A. quake of, of 94 woke me right out of my sleep.
1: Well, that kind of quake, I can understand. We never had that kind yeah. of quake where I've lived.
4: But you really do. you got to get outside and walk a lot to see a UFO. And, and sometimes, who? I mean, just imagine, you're... Hovering over Los Angeles and you're silent because these anti-gravity machines are not using jet engines and propellers. And So what are the odds that you're going to even look up? You don't even hear anything. And most people nowadays are so busy running around in their cars, going to appointments, and even if there's an airplane going over their head, they're not going to look up. You have to look up. The, the UFOs don't come and land on Melrose Avenue yet, but you know we hope they
2: will. Do we hope that happens? <laughs> I don't know about that.
4: In the daytime, you know, nighttime is the scariest time and the most intrusive time for for ETs to be messing with humans. But if you just land in broad daylight, you know, I would really appreciate that a lot more than having mm. you know, having the hell scared out of me.
1: Fate magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
2: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietni.
0: You never know what's going to happen next.
1: This is an invitation, by the way, to the entities piloting the UFOs. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking today to David Sarita. He worked with Dan Aykroyd on Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs. He was also director of that DVD, and you can probably find that over at amazon if you take a look and maybe your favorite best buy or something but i wanted to ask you just a quick question about dan Aykroyd, and that is he has had a couple of sightings right yes
2: well we assume that's how he got interested in this whole topic what's the nature of his sightings were they also at a young age david
4: well the first sighting he first thing he talks about is the cover of life magazine when there was the the photographs of the ufos over this Capitol in dc washington dc which to me everyone always says you know we won't believe it until ufos land on the white house lawn well they almost did in nineteen fifty two and it made it made life magazine they were right over the you know state capitol building where where congress does all of its hearings i mean you can't ask for better than that but there were multiple uh, ufos in those photographs and the case is when you study the case sightings which dan did as a kid that's what got him hooked and later He has a high-altitude sighting while he was flying in in, in an airplane, and he saw um, a, a disk shape ufo pursuing one of our aircraft and that really startled him and a lot of his friends and then he had the case of the and this is an amazingly complicated case because dan said he had this psychic feeling to go outside go outside and he told his wife they're calling me go outside and i think what was happening is the collective consciousness was saying to go outside because people saw one of those massive you know pink spirals going up into the sky which typically are missile tests that are done we do them here at vandenberg air force base in california California, and you'll see this blue spiraling missile going up, you know, shooting up into the sky. Well, this is where it gets really interesting, because in Project Disclosure, um, Stephen Greer has a videotape case of an officer, military officer, who worked at Vandenberg Air Force Base when they actually fired one of their missiles. The missile was pursued by a UFO and the UFO shoots it with a laser and he he actually testifies to seeing the videotape of this and the UFO shot down the missile. The most recent, last summer, Vandenberg did an air force, did a missile test in Los Angeles and my friend Henrik called me up and he said, the missile is chasing something. And it seems to be chasing a UFO because this this UFO is just making a mess out of it. I mean, this missile can't touch it. And then I got photographs of the same test that were taken all the way from Sedona, Arizona. And in the digital photograph, you can see that there is something else there other than the missile, something that moves incredibly fast. Um, Because if you, you take the shutter speed of the camera, you know, even at the 60th of a second at nighttime, and then the object that the the missile is pursuing leaves a streak a zipping little streak around on the film plane so that means in a 60th of a second it, it moved all over it's the place
2: quite a bit yeah
4: and that's very similar to what, how gordon cooper describes the ufos he was chasing when he was in station in germany after the war that they would just zip around and they would they wouldn't move the way conventional aircraft move so there's something to what dan is saying there and I think what was happening, probably in that case, was we were once again trying to shoot down a UFO, and in fact, Stanton Friedman was pointing this out in a recent interview we did with him on com. and Stanton's talking about a new book called Shoot him Down or Shoot him Out of the Sky, and it's all about the military orders we have to shoot down UFOs. The Battle 42 case, which we also have in the Dan Aykroyd film, is one of the most amazing cases I've ever heard of because... It involves allegedly nine UFOs flying over Los Angeles, which we thought were the Japanese in the beginning of World War II. Hmm. We fired 1,400 rounds of these things all night, and eyewitnesses described them as amber-colored, you know, disc-shaped, you know, orb-type structures that were glowing. And several people died that night from falling munitions. Uh, One police officer died of a heart attack from the fright and the terror. The military eyewitnesses um, that actually fired upon the object, said they could only see the lights in the sky. They never said they saw wings of an airplane, and one of them apparently gets down low when they put all the searchlights up on it, and what happens is the story gets very diluted and convoluted and controversial when the military says, oh, the photograph is a balloon that we launched, and we put all the searchlights up on it. Well, Think about this logically. You're being invaded by the Japanese. A blackout is ordered for all power stations from the Mexican border all the way to Fresno. No city lights are on. It's pitch black. And you want to, you want to light up a balloon in the sky and spend all that time and you're actually being invaded supposedly by the Japanese? You've actually got time to launch a balloon and put all the searchlights on it instead of putting the searchlights on the actual invading aircraft. It doesn't add up. And then what happens is this new George C. Marshall memorandum emerges that states that George C. Marshall, who was Army Chief of Staff at the time, later becomes Secretary of Defense and wins the Nobel Peace Prize for the Marshall memorandum. One of the highest-ranking military officers of our time testifies that they had – Received reports that they retrieved two crash airplanes from the from the shootings, one of them was off the coast of Long Beach, the other was in the San Bernardino mountains and when they examined the airplanes as they called them, they said they were not of earthly origin, and the interplanetary phenomenon unit takes over and most likely those UFOs would have gone to what is now known as Edwards Air Force Base back then was Muroc Field now if we Theoretically brought them pre-Roswell to Edwards Air Force Base in 1942, and we were able to do anything with them. I proposed that what Gordon Cooper saw landing on the, uh, you know, the runway at Edwards Air Force Base, and they, the one they actually filmed, which he described as disk shaped anti-gravity, three little landing gear go out and lands on the base. Why would you, an extraterrestrial, land in a military base knowing what just happened in the Battle of Forty Two a decade earlier and why would you would something land on the base and not be interrogated by military aircraft? Unless it was a reverse engineering black ops project where they were, you know, test flying this this new craft that we had discovered. I that's why I think when Cooper when they filmed this thing and they sent the film to the Pentagon, there was no answer because it was like, Thank you very much, that was a free eyes only, you know, test flight and mm-hmm. you weren't supposed to see that and and it wasn't, at this point, it was something that we were in control of. It just doesn't add up that, that an ET would land in a military base, considering... All right, the, David.
2: But here's the thing about that. Assuming for a minute that there was indeed a captured craft that was alien technology, hmm. quite frankly, I find it absolutely impossible that we'd be able to figure out how to control such a craft. I don't think there's any way that a human being could get in a ship like that you know i mean we see this portrayed in ridiculous science fiction and that's all good and fine but the idea that a human being will get into one of these craft even from what we know about what we think are the size of these creatures even comfortably fit into the control capsule of one of these things, much less figure out how to actually guide it. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, I find that outrageous. I don't, I don't think that is possible. I don't think that a, the best test pilot would sit at one of these things and in any way understand the instrumentation.
1: Of course, if I you're just, Jeff Goldblum and late. Will Smith,
2: <laughs> you can get just away with it. That. sure that's ridiculous? No, no, no. You're, you're
1: talking about
4: over a decade later. The Battle of 42 is 1942. Right. Cooper sees this thing on Edward Air Force Base in 1957, and then I see it in 1967-68 in Berkeley off of, you know, near the Berkeley National Lab. Now, you know, I'm not saying what I saw that day was it's from another the planet, thing. but it right. was anti-gravity, and it was not making any noise, and it did disappear in a blink of an eye. I... I'm just drawing a stream here, a possible hypothesis. I'm not saying I know that for a fact, but over a decade gives us a lot of time to try to repair this thing and get it working. There was a major, major sighting over Edwards Air Force Base in 1947, in early July, and multiple sightings that were documented by and testified Air Force personnel from that time period testified to seeing these orbs hovering over their their Air Force base. Now, when you look at the eyewitness testimony of the Battle 42, the amber-colored disc-shaped UFOs, if you look in the Dan Aykroyd movie at Lynn Keetai's photograph from the Phoenix Lights, a few years following the Phoenix Lights case of the massive 5,000-foot-wide triangle that was seen going from one end of the state to the other that blacked out the sky in between the points of light, she photographs three amber discs that are glowing with light with amber color, right above South Mountain. And that those photographs, to me, remind me so much of what people, the eyewitnesses described in the Battle of 42. But what's amazing about the Battle of 42 is, again, you have eyewitnesses. You have multiple eyewitnesses at Edwards Air Force Base. Cooper is not the only one who testifies. Whether we reverse-engineered them or not, that's the big question. I can't say that I can prove that. That's a hypothesis. And my question is, are we willing to continue laughing at this subject in the media when in China they're reportedly spending $20 million on a UFO research center, in, in Iran, India, they're at their aerospace labs they're, they're working on anti-gravity. And clearly we can see from the Hutchison effect John Hutchison is is causing you know heavy cannonballs and heavy steel objects to levitate that this is actually possible he can't duplicate it every time with perfection but he has produced the effect and everybody I know at NASA knows who John Hutchison is so why are not we spending money working on anti-gravity why is it that the President of the United States cannot confirm and Congress cannot confirm that we're doing this and are we willing to take the mistake of you know, letting another country figure this out first, and if they do, what will happen to our air force?
2: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to David Sarita, who is one of the stars and the director of Dan Aykroyd, Unplugged on UFOs. And right now we're trying to unplug all the information about the UFO mystery and about all the various possibilities. And that goes into another story here. And that is, (laughs) what about the fact of the attitude towards the ufo phenomenon by the hollywood community we know that for example Mm -hmm. dan Aykroyd is a believer i think also richard belzer is the guy who's on law and order special victims unit i know he wrote a book on conspiracy theories he sounds like he's accepting of this but isn't it true david that a lot of the hollywood people do not go along with this stuff
3: well, it's funny
4: because Richard Belzer, uh, Dan Aykroyd, had me send him a copy of the film right away when we released it. You know, David Bowie has testified to seeing a UFO in his biography. Um, I've gotten emails from other well-known musicians that have. But Steven Spielberg has not publicly disclosed, although I tend to think he's a believer. But, you know, you have, like, for example, David Duchovny, the X-Files. He worked on the X-Files for nine seasons. And the night of the X-Files' grand final, final episode on season nine, Fox News ran a seven-minute piece with me. Gordon Cooper appeared in it and about the NASA UFO phenomena. But as far as the Hollywood community, David uh, Duchovny does not believe. He That's right. Me personally. Right. He does not believe, but apparently Dana Scully does Joan Anderson, so you wonder she's the skeptic, and he's the believer in the in the series, but in real life, you know yeah. Dean Haglund, who I also have met and know, who's the Lone Gunman and is also the Lone Gunman on The X Files, he's a a strong believer in in the phenomena. But what amazes me is when you look at the numbers on, like Close Encounters, for example. This is quite shocking. Grossed 380 million worldwide in, in 1977, I believe it was. And when you convert that, at the U.S. Institute of Economics, they have this online inflation calculator. So you put in a number and you convert it to today's dollars, and it comes to 1.1 billion U.S. dollars mm. today. E.T. converted from the 1980s comes to 1.6 billion dollars today. So movies like War of the Worlds don't even compare to E.T. In, in the true value of the dollar back then equal to today.
1: You know what's strange, though, is that in those days we portrayed E.T. as something benevolent and now exactly my point that's exactly
4: my point we we portrayed them as something benevolent and kind someone that we could learn from who was going to help us like in the end of close encounters richard dreyfus and the gang go up on the ship and you know they're going to be returned safely because these other air force pilots are returned safely and they're going to learn a lot and then when you show alien and all these you know evil alien movies They sell pretty well, but not as good as the positive stuff.
2: Well, sure. People want to believe that we are loved by all creatures, which, of course, is uh, fairly unlikely, I suspect. You know, when you look at the realities of what we know about these encounters, given the many filters that the information goes through, I mean, it's clear to me that the motivation that these beings might have, I don't think it's about saving humanity. In the same way that if we had the ability to go to another planet and we found a technologically much less sophisticated civilization there, I don't think we'd be figuring out ways to help them. I think we'd be looking at what benefit we'd get from the situation. Look, guys, I'd like to be optimistic and think, oh, you know, that... These, whatever these creatures are, whether they are extraterrestrial creatures, whether they're interdimensional creatures, or whether they're us from the future, and by the way, I, in my sightings, I can't say with any degree of certainty that these ships are from another planet. I don't know that. I, I do know they're not current human technology, that seems pretty clear to me, but the idea that as is portrayed in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I saw in Venezuela the week it opened, and we're talking about a country where a, a majority of people have had these kinds of experiences, and let me tell you, the theaters were packed when that movie played down there. You know, people didn't take this as light entertainment. To a lot of people it was almost autobiographical, the nature of that movie, but that being the case. I think that it's a projection of our own desires that we'd like to think that if there was some technologically sophisticated creature or superior to us, that they would want to help us. I think that's our own desire. I really don't think that has a lot to do with the actual reality. And if you look at you know, the fact that here you have the Air Force trying to shoot these things down, shooting at a ship is not exactly a way to say hello to it. It reminds me of the beginning of the day the Earth stood still, where, you know, the very first response is, let's shoot.
4: Yeah, well, that shows you, I mean, imagine traveling all the way from another star system, ourselves, we finally find life on another planet, and we get there, and it's like, hi, we, you know, (laughs) we're not alone, and then they shoot at you. Yeah. And what's amazing about the Battle of 42 is they never shot back at us, and even took, you know, took a hit, I mean, obviously not all of them. Were a hit, but just the fact that they took a hit—that that is incredibly, you know, non-invasive on their part. They're they're just simply curious.
2: Well, yeah. We'll also, don't assume that they have on their craft weaponry. You know, the we humans are, are an incredibly violent species. I mean, we, we think in terms of uh domination and submission. I don't necessarily believe that a technologically sophisticated civilization would have those same sets of prejudices or constraints. So no, perhaps
4: we go to, on the Mars probe we don't bring nuclear weapons and missiles, you know. And they're probably the same way. I mean some of these GoFos yeah, yeah. could be probes and they're just yeah. curious, you know.
1: We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO magazine on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine?
3: Yes, I sure can. This is UFO magazine and I'm Bill Burns the publisher and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special 5-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers 19.95. Or your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast.
1: So, Bill, how do they place the order?
3: People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at one 888 MAGA, or they can write to us at post office box 11013 Marina Del Rey, California, 90295.
1: Bill, give us that contact information again.
3: It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call one 888 U-F-O-M-A-G-A and they can subscribe it right over the phone with a credit card.
2: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: Well, they have to have some kind of plan afoot, though, to deal with the possibility of being attacked, because you assume that UFOs have been here quite a while and they understand our various cultures. And if they do, they would be prepared to either defend themselves or try to just take a hands-off approach, which is if they're shot at... As long as the damage isn't serious, don't do anything. You're listening, by the way, to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedny. And we hope that David Sarita, who is director and one of the stars of Dan Aykroyd, Unplugged on UFOs, a new DVD, will stay with us a while longer so we can explore these possibilities. And that is alien motivations we're looking at these so-called aliens in the eyes of an earth person so we think of being friendly we think of taking a hands-off approach we think of being hostile in the sense that we are but we might be dealing here with civilizations that are thousands tens of thousands of years ahead of us and maybe all this petty stuff we're worrying about is way way Beyond anything they consider, or their motivations are so alien we couldn't even understand them.
4: Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I agree. I mean, they could be millions of years uh, ahead of us. I mean, the age of the universe with Hubble's calculations keeps getting older. I mean, when I think we're up to like 13 billion years now since the Big Bang, but, you know, there's obviously, you know, even the Big Bang is the creation of this universe. You're getting into parallel universes now and multiple universes. So, really, I mean, if we're the only ones in here, it's just like in the the movie Contact, what what a waste of space. Yeah. There's no way we're the only ones here. No. There's no way at all. And when you really get into the physics of how these things move, which is my forte, my, my special area, because of the sighting I had at Berkeley and the dream that I had that started me on the process. I've now been invited formally by NASA and other agencies to submit my theoretical propulsion work, which they find very fascinating and worth testing as far as building experimental test models, but there's no money for exotic propulsion research, I am told. Even at Cornell University, Berkeley University, university of california berkeley and in, in cornell you you have physicists that are interested in ufo's but they keep inside their own community the powers that be that are higher in the administration than they are keep shooting down that idea of researching this inside the university they keep getting shot down so consequently there's no money to test this stuff so a lot of these guys and these women retire from these universities when they get into their 60s and 70s they they want to talk and they all call me and i have great conversations with these people or PhD physicists, but they don't want to talk until they're retired, and, and they don't want to risk not getting their their grant monies for the research they are doing, which is their bread and butter. Because as soon as they put this subject on the table, then you're blacklisted. You know, no one wants to talk to you. Let me raise no an, an
1: issue here. This is something, an article that appeared actually on the Associated Press, and I will read <laughs> I will read two paragraphs of it, and I think it will raise a lot of discussion, which is how organized religion deals. With these things. And this is dated Hong Kong. Famed physicist Stephen Hawking said Thursday, and Thursday we're referring to the 15th of June, that Pope John Paul II tried to discourage him and other scientists attending a cosmology conference at the Vatican from trying to figure out how the universe began. The scientist, the British scientist, joked he was lucky the Pope didn't realize he had already presented the paper at the gathering suggesting how the universe was created. And I think the Roman Catholic Church position here is that we shouldn't attempt to understand God's work. That was the issue. And the question would be then how is organized religion going to react to all this? Are they doing anything to advance or to prevent understanding of what's going on with UFOs?
4: Well, it's amazing because the, the Washington, D.C. conference, the ex-conference I spoke at, I think it was this past winter or the winter before, I always lose track of time. But anyway, Monsignor Carrado Barducci, who is a monsignor in the Catholic Church, came to speak um, about the Vatican's position on UFOs, and he admitted that they research it. They think a lot of them are fake, but they actually believe some of them are authentic. There are real cases of extraterrestrials visiting the planet. So... His official position is that the Vatican does accept the ET hypothesis. And this is one of the highest, you know, ranking Monsignors hmm. in the Catholic Church, you know, advising the Pope. So the fact that the, the new Pope, what you're saying, doesn't want, you know, Hawking's and physicists to know. Well, that was God
1: Pope, pope John Church. Paul. That's not the new Pope we're talking about pope
4: here. Pope John Paul, it's really ironic to me because, you know, physics and science, is, I mean, if anything is my greatest interest, it is the subject of merging the highest ideals in uh, religion and spirituality with physics, and that is in my new book, Singularity, that I've almost finished working on now. And, you know, you look, you go back to even Einstein saying that religion without science and science without religion is blind, you know, that you can't have one without the other. Chairman Mao, the leader of the, uh, of, the of the Chinese government during the invasion of Tibet, told the Dalai Lama that he, wa- he thought religion was poor. And, and he saw how successful America was with its science and technology, and he wanted to get his country away from religion and on to science. Well, um, he did the wrong thing because most of the greatest scientific minds in history came to America from other countries or were born here, from, from Benjamin Franklin to Thomas Edison who invented the motion picture and, and – uh, and and the first light bulbs, and uh, Nikola Tesla, I mean, Einstein, all of them, the Wright brothers, the computer, the airplane, the automobile. You can go right down the list to the first trip to the moon and and the space shuttle program. It all happened here at first. It didn't happen in Japan. It didn't happen in Europe. It didn't happen in Russia first. It happened here first, and the reason – is because we are we have freedom of speech freedom of religion freedom of thought there's no oppressor here you know there are oppressors here but i mean generally in relativity to the rest of the world we're the freest country in the world so when you don't oppress people they get very creative and very inventive when you oppress them They don't come up with anything, you know, except for how to get out of the oppression.
1: Well, here, though, though our space program appears to have really fallen by the wayside. We don't plan to get back to the moon until the next decade, if then, to Mars. Now... At this point the space program at least from all intents and purposes publicly has not advanced very far from the 1970s it's like we just dropped it all and kind of let it yeah, fall I down I
4: mean but so the thing is you can you know what NASA discovered is that you cannot go any further with rockets and ion thruster drives than we're already doing and they're they're frustrated with propulsion and that's why there's many individuals at NASA who go to UFO conferences and are looking for new ideas and I was sitting in the front row at the ex-conference in dc next to this elderly gentleman he's taking down notes and we were watching the honey musan presentation on the mexican ufo's and you know i would you know he knew who i was and I, I asked him you know what do you do and he said i'm a physicist for the united states army and i said what are you doing here and he said i i'm interested in how these things fly and then we started talking about the mexican um... the case that was on the on the fox national news of the the Mexican infrared invisible UFO case and we we were both laughing because when someone tried to say that they were oil fires from an oil rig on down on the ocean <laughs> being picked up on infrared we both laughed because we both knew that uh, I think it was eight or nine out of the eleven UFOs escaped radar and radar would bounce very clearly off a of metal steel you know oil rig no problem you would see that you would see it on radar and further the angle Of incidents, when you're looking at the UFOs in the uh, FLIR camera, the forward-looking infrared cameras, and the Mexican military footage, the UFOs are straight out, you know, out the window at, you know, straight out angle at 90 degrees. Yeah. And then you look at where the ocean oil rigs would be; it would be very, you know, steep, you know, going down. I think that. The planes were flying at about 13,000 feet. an altitude I am very familiar with because I skydive all the time at 12,500 feet. And I know that altitude. I know where the horizon is. And I know where, you know, if you were flying above the ocean, what that would look like. And the camera would have to bend very steeply down to see, you know, oil fires and oil rigs down at, the, at, at sea level. So there's no way that's what we were looking at in, the, in that case. Yet somehow, The media said, okay, well, we disproved it. It was just oil rigs and oil fires and producing the signals, and that's the end of it. A good physicist knows that that's just pure nonsense.
1: Okay, so we accept that maybe some advanced technology is happening here. What you're saying here, though, is that there appears to be some sort of disinterest on the part of science in discovering these new propulsion systems and certainly if we captured ufos say at roswell new mexico or maybe earlier wouldn't we have some kind of handle at this point as to some of their technology that over forty or fifty years we couldn't figure it out is that what you might be suggesting
2: well i'm saying if
4: we did retrieve saucers at roswell which would be mangled and and we did have saucers in the battle of forty two and there's a few other crash retrieval cases Um, Ryan Wood's new book, Magic Eyes Only, deals with crash retrievals. You know, you're right. In a certain sense, you wouldn't know how to work it right away, that's for sure. But uh, I think if there's real hardware there, you can analyze it and you can put it back together and try to figure out how it works. And over a decade, that could be possible. But the thing that disturbs me the most is if we do have anti-gravity right now today, and we have reverse engineered it from UFOs, or we figured it out on our own. Why aren't we using it in our military? Why isn't it evident in, in the wars that we're fighting? And why wouldn't we use it to float an iceberg and, and drop a big chunk of ice in a dry lake bed and end a drought? I mean, there's so many things you can do with anti gravity that would you know transform our world.
1: Why buy oil from unstable nations? Let's raise the largest Why issue. buy
4: oil and go to war when you have zero point energy? In fact, Gary McKinnon, the British computer hacker who risked his entire life to hack into mainframe military computers just to find out that you know UFOs are real and in the BBC interview he said that he found evidence that there is anti-gravity and zero point energy technology which we could use to end the energy crisis on our planet and and the, you know, global warming and the whole thing. He, he was willing to risk his life and may face up to 70 years in prison. Let's go into that in
1: a moment because I know yeah. some of our listeners have read this in the papers, but I really want to amplify this subject. You've
0: entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Our guest on the show today is David Sarita, director and one of the stars of Dan Aykroyd, Unplugged on UFOs. This is a DVD that you can order from Amazon or your favorite online or retail DVD reseller, and it covers a lot of the interesting elements of the UFO enigma. And now we're talking about still another aspect.
4: Yeah, I mean, Gary the Gary McKinnon case intrigues me a lot. Well, tell
1: who is he? How did he get started in this crazy business of trying to hack into US government computers?
4: He, he's a kid. I mean, who just developed a passion for for the UFO phenomena, who wants to know the truth and is in, is tired of the denial at the government level and decides to hack into NASA where he finds uh, photographs that are being retouched, taken from the space shuttle and the space station, of UFOs um, hovering in our atmosphere. And they're, you know, editing out the UFOs. And he sees the photo before and after. And before he can grab one, he gets dis- because they find him he also says he got into the you know the air force and the military where he found evidence of anti-gravity propulsion work and uf zero point energy which he believes could solve the, the crisis we face on the planet today and they're withholding that energy but that energy technology well he didn't really have to to risk 70 years imprisonment to find out everything he found out because you know he can look at at the video evidence and evidence the case for nasa ufos and see that there are definitely ufos um, unidentified flying objects out there whether they're spaceships or metal ships or or light craft we, we don't really know but there is enough evidence there's enough astronauts who have testified Allegedly, Neil Armstrong is going to testify before he dies you know what do you say to Edgar Mitchell who walked on the moon and he's speaking at UFO conferences what do you say to these guys I mean does everyone in the media have the right to say they're all crazy I mean who are they who is the media the media is supposed to report the facts not to interject their their opinions so strongly against expert witnesses so uh, Gary McKinnon to me is fascinating because his passion is so strong He's, if he does go to jail for life, he's going to become like a political prisoner.
1: Of- Did he find out, by the way, David, how far we progressed with anti-gravity research, or was he stopped before that happened?
4: Well, no, I think he found evidence. That's what he said in the BBC interview, that they, we truly have anti-gravity and zero-point energy, and that NASA was retouching photographs of UFOs. Um, captured on space shuttle missions, so you know he's convinced, and I think he's satisfied. And if he goes to prison, he will become a political prisoner of sorts. And everyone in the UFO movement already is signing a petition for his, you know, innocence. He didn't physically hurt anybody. Nobody's computers or offices blew up. He just proved how insecure these military uh, servers are and how easy they are to get in. He mentioned that there, while he was online in some of these uh, you know, military computers, he could see other people were hacking in from Australia and other countries all over the world were hacking in. So what he, what he should be paid for telling the military, hey, look, everybody's inside of your computers. You are not secure. And I think that's worth a salary, not a 70-year prison sentence.
2: Don't you think the military knows that systems are being hacked? Maybe indeed it knows it, and it's... Using this as a form of ruse to find out who these people are. I mean, it's it's setting the cheese in the trap. Well, don't you think?
4: Not when they're finding out things that are supposedly top secret. If they were letting them get into some insecure information, you know, that would be something they don't need to have highly secure. I would believe that, but not when they're getting, you know, really top secret stuff. I do. I you know I know the military is cheap. i you know I was I worked in, in bomb detection and I know how little money they spend. I mean, look at our troops in Iraq. I mean, they won't even spend the money on the metal plating on the Hummers.
2: So yeah, the it's Alaska pretty disgraceful. Yeah.
4: You know, it's disgraceful that we would put our guys in that kind of harm's way because we're too cheap. You know, what what are we doing? Not only that, when you lose a soldier, you lose offensive power. So, I mean, just because you're, you don't want to spend a little bit of extra money on the Hummers, I mean, it's, I, I don't put it past the military to have really cheap computers and not spend money on on getting the latest, um, you know, anti-hacking software or, or keeping someone you know, at work who's constantly monitoring hackers, really keeping secure.
1: It's the lowest really bidder, have- my friends. You get it from the lowest bidder. You ask for contracts from different people and you either take the lowest bidder or you take the guy who contributed to the proper political campaign or the political mm-hmm. action committee. That's how you do it. It's not being done by, by quality. It never is.
4: Yeah, I worked in bomb detection. We revolutionized airport security systems and... And we had, you know, top defense contracting labs verify our results. And we got no sales. Nobody wants better bomb detectors in our airports. In fact, x-ray machines and CAT scans, you know, it's a fact that they can't find a well-disguised bomb. And we could with our systems, and they didn't want them, you know, because it would cost more money. And Bush put all this money out for Homeland Security, and people spent it on, you know, nonsense. If you saw the 60 Minutes interview, I mean, the people didn't know what to spend the money on. But they didn't buy better bomb detection equipment. That's that's a that's a real tragedy. And
1: is the military buying better propulsion systems? That's another question. So if they've yeah. advanced to any reasonable degree with anti-gravity research, you would think that over at Area 51 or some place they are testing these crafts. So that's another issue too. Is it possible well, the today?
4: Best way to do it sure. Is, I mean, Paul Violette believes the the physicists believe that the B2 bomber and the F117 are are using anti-gravity and what better way to hide it than in an aircraft that uses jet engines and when they want to they turn on the anti-gravity then no one would know because they would they would only use the anti-gravity systems at night and he presents a very strong case for that, and it's possible some of the triangular UFOs are the B-2 and the F-117, although I don't think so. I think you know the, the the configuration on the lights on these triangular UFOs is not consistent with the B-2. But that would be an amazing place to hide it in existing aircraft.
1: In plain sight.
4: In plain sight, because they fly in the daytime and at nighttime. They're using anti-gravity, and who's going to know? They're silent when they, when they use anti-gravity. I mean, even where I skydive at Lake Paris in California, the military uh, there's a lot of military people who work at the skydiving facility because they get a lot of military training there. And this one woman told me that right on the skydive drop zone one night, this giant UFO came right down over her house, shined the lights on the house, She looked out the window and was just terrified, and she said, this thing didn't make a noise. It was a big black triangle with big beaming lights coming out of the bottom, and it just hovered there above the house, and then it just took off.
1: For 58 years, Fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
2: This is the Powercast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney.
0: You never know what's going to happen next.
1: You're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have a few more minutes to spend with David Sarita, who is director and one of the stars of Dan Aykroyd, Unplugged on UFOs, a DVD. David, before we ask you the final question or two, tell us, a little bit more about the DVD and where to get a copy.
4: Well, you can get copies of Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs at Amazon.com, at Best BestBuy.com. You can rent it at Netflix.com. You can rent it at Blockbuster Online. So um, it's it's in some stores. It's in the FYI store in New York and some Barnes and Nobles, but we're still working our way into stores. And... Um, I hope everybody everybody sees this film.
1: Well, I'm going to rent it from <laughs> from Netflix right now. So the point is to get yeah. it out there. This is not just to have a couple of dollars in royalties. This is to get the message out there. So what kind of reaction have you gotten so far to date?
4: Well, you get, you know, from the film, uh, there's people who just love it and and sit there and stop on the footage and fast-forward it. And then there's people whose eyes are so closed that, they say, you know, well, you got all these expert witnesses, but where's the proof? I mean, an expert witness in videotape, what do you, what do you want? You want an alien to, to come out and shake your hand. There are certain people who won't believe until it gets that far. Well, sorry, I don't have that for you right now, but this is what we do have. We have expert witness testimony. We have amazing footage and photographs. To the best of my knowledge, is the best video footage I could find of UFOs from Mexico and Sonora, California, and Phoenix, Arizona, et cetera. And also the Great Lakes region, so. You know, everybody just just watch it. You know, you don't. I mean, you can buy the film for 13 bucks. It's the price of one movie ticket, and your family can own the film, and uh, you, or you can just rent it on Netflix or Blockbuster online.
1: I should tell you, by the way, yeah. that if you want to rent it on Netflix, they're telling me it's a very long wait. So either they didn't buy enough copies, or everybody out there is <laughs> lined up to get a hold of one. Oh, really? Is that what they're saying? That's right. I just checked.
4: Wow. Well, they need to buy more copies, obviously. <laughs> a
1: thousand yeah. more. So what? What is Dan doing these days in order to get the message out to, especially the Hollywood community? Well,
4: we've been on uh, CNN, Anderson Cooper together. We've been, which they, they did a really nice piece with us. They, we've been on Dan's been on Rita Cosby, MSNBC. He's been on Greta Van Susteren on Fox, and Greta Van Susteren said this is a fascinating documentary, and she has seen it herself. Um, there's lots of people who are really loving this. I mean, they're really getting a lot out of it. And then there's, you know, it, there's all the radio shows we've done. There's been a lot of uh, articles in various newspapers and, and trade magazines. So Dan is on a crusade right now, and he's he's done an amazing job of getting this information out there. The next thing that needs to happen is people have to demand that their, their local video store, their spiritual bookstore, whatever it is, get the DVD because people want this. They just, you know, have a hard time getting it like you just said, there's a weight on, on Netflix. That That's incredible.
1: Well, I'll have my son check. He's a member of Blockbuster. It's an equal opportunity offender type family here. And I'll have him check with his Blockbuster account to see whether there's a better chance of getting a copy there because Blockbuster doesn't have near as many members. Yeah. What about other Hollywood figures? Anyone since this DVD came out come across and said, "Hey, we got a sighting. You know, Dan's really convinced me. Maybe we should get the message out." And the other issue, oh. which is a, which is a second one. But let me have you answer that one first.
4: Well, there are others who have contacted me, but I don't give their names out, just like people at NASA, until they give me permission to. And I think I'm going to. I'm you know designing another movie right now, which I hope to start shooting this summer. I'm um, called From Here to Andromeda, which will be shot more reality as it's happening style, and, and I'll be interviewing a lot of famous people in that as well. But not just famous people, I mean, I've got real life abduction, abduction experiencers who are, uh, a lot of them are, are young teenagers and who I tend to believe. Uh, greatly when they tell me their stories and also I'm going to go much deeper into my propulsion work in this film than I've ever done before so that that's that's next in the works.
1: Part two which well, is here and David will ask the last question but part two is that do Hollywood figures have as much credibility in terms of bringing serious subjects to light and I think of course of the Tom Cruise factor where you have the image of him jumping up on the couch on the Oprah Winfrey show and maybe after that people don't take him as serious as they used to. So the question is, do people in general take someone from Hollywood, especially a comic actor, a brilliant comic actor like Dan Aykroyd, as someone who should be taking seriously when he says, yes, there are UFOs, yes we need to investigate it more carefully. They they
4: should take Dan Aykroyd seriously because he's backed up by expert witnesses and also everybody knows him as a paranormal researcher and experiencer himself from Ghostbusters to Sneakers to, to all the other movies he's ever done and also his show on, on sci-fi, Sci-fi Tales of the Paranormal. So Dan is really the perfect guy to bring disclosure. But he's also such a friendly and warm guy. And, you know, he never in the film ever, you know, we're trying to get past, way past whether happening or not. We're trying to go way past that in this film. Let's get into the, the, the politics of disclosure, the military questions, uh, the question of how we're treating our planet right now and where the future lies with, you know, saving the planet with new technology and what we have to learn from, from these, these visitors. We're trying to get way past that. Most TV shows and UFO files are still stuck at go. Is it real or not? I'm, you know, that's why I use the expert witnesses over and over again, that if they're saying it's real, it's real. So get get over it. It's already happened. You know, you've got to get past that, and that's what I'm trying to do here.
1: Mr. Biedney, you have
4: and a
2: final oh, question. Well, actually, I wanted to ask David if he'd consider returning to the show in the future, because I'd like to talk a lot more about his ideas of propulsion systems. It's also an area of deep interest of mine and we didn't really get to talk about that on this show but hopefully david you'll come back and we'll have an entire discussion about your thoughts about what these propulsion systems might consist of.
4: Yeah, definitely. We'll definitely do that.
2: That'd be great.
1: Thank you very much. Right. David Sarita, director, one of the stars of Dan Aykroyd. Unplugged on UFOs with Dan Aykroyd. Go to Amazon.com or yell at your favorite rental source or sales source to get a copy. Mr. Sarita, thank you for joining us on the
0: PowerCast.
4: Thank you, guys. Until next Thanks, time.
0: Thanks, David. Absolutely.
2: You've entered another dimension, you've entered the Paracast.
1: Isn't it interesting here in our society that we have to depend on show business figures to get the word out about things we need to understand? It doesn't seem to come from the politicians in Washington who are too busy debating over whether or not we need to have greater fines if somebody happens to show too much skin on TV.
2: It's a a sad statement of our society, our civilization, Gene. I find it interesting that we tend to give actors so much weight in terms of listening to what they have to say, to be interested in their opinions. I happen to like Dan Aykroyd as an actor, so I don't want to take anything away from that. I'm not really aware of his credentials as a paranormal researcher. Uh, Being in the movie Ghostbusters, being in the movie Sneakers, does not, to me, indicate that the man has any special capabilities as a researcher. Movies are lies, Gene, and this is what concerns me about giving so much weight to the statements of celebrities, uh, especially actors. What actors do for a living is they, um, how do I put this so delicately, they're professional liars. They essentially have the capability, the skill, of putting us in a mindset in a place that doesn't really exist. An actor is, to me, not someone who is specifically qualified to be an expert witness on these topics. And it's sad to me that these, are the, these tend to be the people we turn to. I think the point David made is very good in that when you have expert testimony from an Air Force pilot or someone who is intimately involved with the understanding and analysis of aeronautics, of propulsion systems, of metallurgy, When you bring me a witness like that, someone who has spent their life studying these topics and who has something compelling to say about seeing something unidentified, to me, that is what represents a credible and useful witness, not a celebrity. Celebrities, this whole idea that celebrities' opinions are somehow more valuable than other people, well, I just think that's complete nonsense. I'm very much a Chomskyan thinker in that regard. Noam Chomsky, the very well-known political activist who has always said that he is very wary of putting people up on pedestals. I think it's a dangerous precedent. And again, I'm not trying to take anything away from Aykroyd's thoughts about the topic. If he can help make more people aware that this is an area of research that has validity, that has value, then i'm all for it well maybe that's what we require somebody who has the
1: standing as a good host an entertaining host can go on there and lead you to the information because they are not selling his experiences so much i gather and i haven't seen the recording yet so i may be completely off about this they are selling you the experiences of gordon cooper and all the other people who have a lot more credibility mm-hmm. well
2: that's fine i mean if that's the thrust then i'm all for it i You know, I just at this point wish that people would be less interested in celebrity and instead realize that we are all, every one of us, just another talking monkey. Every single one of us. Some of us are a little more aware than others. Some of us are a little more in touch with the planet than others. But for the most part, Gene, as the famous comedian and I like to think political activist Bill Hicks once said, human beings are just viruses with
1: shoes (laughs) (laughs) maybe the aliens think of us in the same way that we're all a bunch of viruses with shoes the thing that worries me about the whole thing though about ufos is that in the quest to bring out information i do think and we understand dan Aykroyd is not a scientist He's mm-hmm. a layman. He certainly has his credentials as an actor, as a comic, but he's, otherwise he's just a layman. He's an interested mm-hmm. person. He's not a scientist, but sometimes the layperson can accept a little bit too much. And we're talking about the Billy
2: Meyer. The Billy case. Meyer stuff, yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, that was the one problem with this interview when David brought up the Billy Meyer stuff. Um, it's, it's a situation where my response is one. It's almost involuntary. I, I detract some credibility from people who strut out the Billy Meyer stuff. The Billy Meyer stuff is, is just absolute horse crap. Bottom line, Gene. I, I don't care that people think that it looks like a ship that they saw, which to which I submit that this guy built these things with the idea that he wanted to sort of take the best hits collection of what everybody thinks they've seen in a disc-shaped UFO, and create what is obviously a faked model of these things and photographing these faked models for personal, financial gain, and for, uh, for ego egocentric reasons. I mean, David questioned why would someone like Billy Meyer do this over decades? What would be his motivation? And the motivation is that without this, he's just another farmer. I mean, people have a need to fill their egos with gratification of any sort. They want to be noticed. They want to be respected. They want to be listened to. They want people to pay attention to them.
1: Well, Eric von so, Daniken, for example, took all these legends about ancient astronauts, and he's no scientist. Mm-hmm. He's a hotel manager or a hotel clerk or something. <laughs> he has yeah. no credentials to be a scientist, but I guess being a normal person gave him, I guess, a sense of credibility. And let's forget about his motives, his possible motives here, because I think that's irrelevant. I just think that. The information may or may not be true, but coming from a normal person, we accept it. Maybe in this day and age, we don't want to hear from scientists anymore. We distrust scientists. We distrust politicians. We distrust so-called experts, but we're willing to give credence to normal people. And one of the things we try to do in the show is try to find people who have an awareness of the subject, but they're not all scientists. They don't have credentials, master's degrees in various scientific subjects like, for example, Stanton Friedman or doctorates in a host of areas like Dr. Travis Taylor, they don't always have that. Or medical degrees, like Dr. Roger Lear, for example. They
2: are just normal people. Well, sure, but if someone's going to talk to me about the physics of a propulsion system, you know, I would prefer they be a physicist. I prefer they be somebody working in that field. Look, I have no problems with people wanting to talk about their experiences gene i'm not a physicist i'm not a propulsion expert yet at the same time i know what i've seen i have some understanding of science i don't you know i don't believe the notion that if you have a degree that makes you know something i know enough about the educational system gene to know that a degree is simply a piece of paper that says that you were able to put up with political nonsense for x number of years and also that you had enough money to pay for the pleasure of sitting in a room or a tenured professor, someone who for the most part doesn't have to do an honest day's work anymore for a living.
1: He can't be fired unless he does something really horrible. Really, really bad. Unless he's a 35-year-old woman who decides to take a 16- or a 15-year-old to bed.
2: Right. These are people who, you know, for the most part, it's true, those who can't do teach. For the most part, it's true. Now, mind you, I'm someone who I have taught in many schools many high-end schools. This last spring, I taught up at Yale University, a fairly well-regarded school. But I did that... Fairly well-regarded, yes. Fairly well-regarded. Sure. Um, but I'm a someone who never graduated from college, Gene. I have three years of college, and I dropped out. I was working at Ziff Davis in an executive position at the time that I was in my third year of college. I came to the realization that the degree at that time was simply not as important as building my career. Now, that's come to haunt me later in life, as it turns out, thanks to George W. Bush and No Child Left Behind and that crap, it's now hard for me to teach in a school because I don't have a college degree. But that being said, you know, I don't think that you have to have a degree to talk about your experiences. I do think that when you're going to get down to the minutia of describing things like propulsion systems, yeah, you know, at that point, it's you want to talk about anti-gravity You're going to have a lot more weight with me if you're a physicist. There's no question about that, Gene.
1: I have to say one thing, David. I can tell you that I am a professor of ignorance. That's the way I tell people about my expertise. You have a degree in that, really? Absolutely. I've just printed it right here on my flashy (laughs) inkjet printer. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know
3: what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at webtv.net. It's all out of this world.
1: You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney A little bit of Earlier, we were talking to David Sarita, who worked with Dan Aykroyd on this new DVD, which brings the UFO enigma to regular people. And I haven't seen it yet because Netflix won't let me rent a copy. And maybe we can get David Sarita to send me a review copy. David, are you listening?
2: Okay, thank you. And we can just go buy it, Gene, for Christ's sake, Come on. Okay, it's your, $13, bucks. we'll just buy it. You know, It's I mean, my be, Father's
1: it's, Day present, remember now, Father's Day, and I am a father. And we're recording this episode before Father's Day, so you will get me a Father's Day present because I'm a father and you're not,
2: right? Well, wait a minute, I thought Grayson would get it for you. Grayson's your son. That's
1: true, but I'm paying all that money for his medical care now, so.
2: Yeah, but that's even more of a reason for him to get it out of gratitude to you. That's right, that's
1: right. Well, there you go. His appreciation. Grayson, are you listening? Grayson, <laughs> yeah, you know, his words of appreciation he appreciates no, what i've thing. done for him he
2: has a, i'm sure he does i know he does but <laughs> so we will have to get um, uh, D- david back on the show just if for nothing else i'm curious about these thoughts he has about propulsion systems I- i'm curious to see where he's coming from and again not to take an, in any way away from his interview we just did but i'm curious to know what he thinks he's onto that has NASA interested in talking with him? Uh, He he didn't represent himself as a physicist, did
1: he? No, he did not. He represented himself, I assume, as a UFO researcher and a filmmaker, of course. Right, yeah, yeah. So I'd be interested to see what ideas he has and why he's got traction in NASA. Why would NASA listen to him? The other thing is here, and there is a contradiction here, maybe we can explore it when we get him back again, and that is if we have captured spaceships, on-hand area 51 Wright patterson whatever wherever they might be wherever right. they might be in australia at the area 51 in australia wherever they are we have the craft here why do we need some outsider to tell us what to do if we already have the secrets at hand we just have to do the reverse engineering or something we're not that smart
2: um even if we have these things gene Let's assume for a moment we had an interplanetary or interdimensional craft in our possession. As I said in the interview, I find it, quite frankly, impossible to believe that we would have the capability of actually figuring out not only how this thing works, but how to control it. I think human beings at this point in in history are in a very dangerous position of believing that they actually understand some significant amount of how this universe works. I think it's clear to me and a number of other people in this world that if if there's one thing that can bring us down as a civilization, as a species, it's our sense of vanity. You know, this idea that somehow we have figured out how the universe works. Let's forget about string theory for a minute because that's probably more than anything else the path to really understanding the true physical nature of the universe. Forget the fact that string theory for many years has been considered a fringe science. But forget about all of that. If we get into religious belief, this idea that human beings somehow understand the nature of a creature or of an entity that created the entire universe, that is absolutely ridiculous, and it speaks volumes to me about the degree of insanity that has infected us as a species. Our vanity will be our undoing.
3: And
1: again, what do you think the aliens might think of us? If They see us just acting like a bunch of crazy people. I do not agree with the belief that the aliens are necessarily beneficial or friendly to us. I think it could be something they don't care about us. We're an entertainment source for them. The aliens come here to see how a bunch of, a, a bunch of silly tribes fight each other without understanding anything about the universe. Even understanding anything about their own planet and forget it, the arguments of global warming or anything else. Just their general behavior. They kill each other. They have no idea what they're doing. Look at all these crazy cases where we have, for example, all these cases of child abductions where they kidnap a child and they rape them and they kill them. These horrible crimes. The Beltway Sniper case that we're hearing about now where they may be even more murdered victims than we knew about originally. If mankind is acting this crazy, I know if I (laughs) were a highly advanced being and I was traveling here, I'd be darn careful about (laughs) landing here because
2: I don't know what they do to us oh yeah absolutely well you know what gene you know why they're really coming here i actually know the answer i've been holding i've been holding back okay tell me i'm listening only this one time gene the nsa is now listening to us okay that's good carnivores switched on don rumsfeld's got his chilled underwear on and dick cheney from an underground bunker is using his four ears to listen very carefully to what i'm about to say all four ears by the way Well, there's six of them, but two of them are right now in the shop. Um, (laughs) The aliens are coming here because they want our music. It's the one thing that human beings seem capable of doing that seems to be fairly unique. It's the music. And I'll tell you how I know this, Gene, because the other night at Radiohead, I saw some aliens. And they weren't illegal (laughs) aliens from south of the border? Oh, they weren't Mexican, they weren't from Costa Rica or El Salvador, no sir. They were from a small planet uh, circling Beetlejuice. And they were here listening to Radiohead because apparently, Gene, the most significant cultural product ever produced by planet Earth, by humans, is music. And apparently um, the aliens are right now trying to figure out who they prefer, Elvis or Radiohead. Or the Beatles. Actually, no, it turns out the Beatles are not in the running, surprisingly enough. Oh, I asked the aliens about that, and apparently they said something along the lines of no yoko, no yoko. I don't know what that means. That's right. Well, as a matter of fact, people, get
1: out your Etch-A-Sketch. You know, Put away the Ouija boards, folks. <laughs> you know, in the future, on future shows, seriously enough, of uh, yeah. the Paracast, we've explored the UFO and from a lot of different places, and one of the areas that we really haven't focused on as much as we should is this area of How do you get the word out of what's happening? Can you even understand what's happening? Which is the first stage of the thing. It's not whether UFOs are real or not, obviously people see things. But the question is here, how do you understand what is going on? How do you understand whether it's interdimensional, another planet, another level of existence, whatever, a combination of all three, four or five possibilities? How do you understand that? And how do you convince anybody in the world of science, the world of politics, to seriously look at it. Thank you for listening, everyone, to The Paracast. The
0: Paracast, with Gene Steinberg and David Biedny, is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.